0: From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, this is Earth Eats, and I'm your host, Kate Young.
1: I just think that it's an opportunity for us to change, to fundamentally change the way we look at what and how we eat, and I just hope that this isn't just a small moment in that, but it's the beginning of a food revolution.
0: This week on the show, we talk with professor, entrepreneur, community artist, and urban gardener, Jared Dorch about the value of growing food beyond the food itself. And Josephine McRobbie talks with a forager, a grower, and a chef about the fascinating world of edible mushrooms. That's all just ahead. Stay with us. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. When a food or ingredient is trending, What exactly does that mean for those who work with that food on a local level? Producer Josephine McRobbie spoke to North Carolina chefs, farmers, and foragers about the mushrooming demand for their product. In January, the New York Times named edible mushrooms the
2: culinary ingredient for 2022. Among lab-engineered faux chicken and 80s-style cocktails, mushrooms might not seem that exciting, But according to wild food expert Frank Hyman, they've been trending for quite a while.
3: I can think of like maybe five times in the last 10 years where some publication has said mushrooms are the it food for this year. Like Martha Stewart declared them the it food for 2019. The same year that there were like three movies in which mushrooms played a role as as a tool of assassination.
2: (laughs) The mystery and excitement surrounding mushrooms even inspired Frank to write a book
3: my book is called how to forage for mushrooms without dying you talk about mushrooms and people like, like step back and like oh, oh you could die from eating mushrooms you better be careful out there frank mushrooms are so tricky even experts can't tell them apart which is just not true but people believe this
2: one of his first rules for mushroom hunters is to avoid what he calls lbms
3: that stands for little brown mushrooms uh, anybody who's a bird watcher is familiar with the term LBJs, little brown jobs. Because there's a bazillion little brown birds. So there's a similar dynamic with mushrooms. There is a boatload of little brown mushrooms that and 99.99% of them are not edible or interesting in any way. Because if you're leading a mushroom hike or a foray, is the term people like to use, and you get sucked into spending a lot of time identifying mushrooms that are not interesting and not edible that's time you're not spending getting further down the trail into the woods finding the equivalent of the painted buntings of the mushroom world which is chicken of the woods and lion's mane and boletes and thing and lobster mushrooms you know things that are colorful and beautiful and delicious
2: he says in general wild mushrooms should be cooked before eating
3: two of the most commonly eaten wild mushrooms, chanterelles and morels. If you eat them raw, you will be hugging the toilet. You'll be doing that because when they're raw, they have chemicals in them that will make you throw up. And so you have to cook them to denature those chemicals and then they're totally safe to eat. So that's just one reason. Another reason is that it's wise to think of um, mushrooms as being more equivalent to meat than to vegetables. And they're equivalent to meat in that they could have bacteria on them out in the woods.
2: One type that can be eaten raw is the beefsteak mushroom.
3: It's kind of the shape of a big, wide tongue. So it looks like a, there's a cow inside the tree and it's sticking its tongue out at you. The interior of the mushroom looks marbled like steak and it, it smells lemony, which is the, the clue. So it has citric acid in it, which suppresses bacteria. And so this is a mushroom that comes with its own preservative, so it's free of bacteria, it's free of chemicals that would make you sick from eating it raw, it actually tastes better raw."
2: He says that one of the selling points for wild mushrooms is their ability to imitate other foods.
3: I I think of them as a good food, a good alternative for vegetarians who are nostalgic. Right? If you grew up eating meat and seafood, you've become vegetarian and you kind of miss that texture and those flavors, then mushrooms can kind of help you bridge that gap.
2: One of Frank's favorites is known as the cauliflower mushroom, but he calls it something else.
3: It looks like egg noodles. It looks like somebody had a big bowl of egg noodles, tripped over a root and spilled it on the ground and, and then went home. And the texture is pretty close to the texture of al dente egg noodles.
2: He's been doing a bit of PR for this type.
3: So this is one of the mushrooms and one of the preparations I use when I'm dealing with people who swear that they don't like mushrooms. Partly it's, partly it's the name because that's a part of the whole eating experience. You know, it's how it tastes and how it looks and how it smells, just how it's described.
2: And for the really adventurous, there's the indigo milky, a mushroom that bleeds a kind of blue milk.
3: And the milk, it just tastes like the mushroom, so it's not like a different flavor or bad flavor. The blue uh, milk will dry out if you leave it in the fridge too long. So you find some blue milkies, bring them home, clean them up, cook them right then, uh, cook up some scrambled eggs, and then put the blue milkies in that, and the blue will turn the yellow uh, of the eggs into like a greenish color. So if you grew up with Dr. Seuss and you like green eggs and ham, here's your chance to do that. But I don't, I've do not i never talked to anybody who's done it more than once.
2: Frank says that with more people exploring the outdoors over the past couple of years, the treasure hunting quality of wild mushrooms has helped to booster their popularity.
3: When people first go out mushroom hunting, either by themselves or with an expert or with some friends, whatever, you're not going to find the you know, exciting mushrooms every time. It's a little bit of a, of a lottery. I mean mostly, 95% of the time probably you will find something and 60% of the time you'll be super happy with what you find. But even a bad day of foraging is still a great day outdoors. The uh, you're, You got out of the house, you got out of the office, you're out with friends. It's gourmet food for free for being outdoors.
4: in the beginning, we were kind
2: of the weird crop at the farmer's market. Laura Stewart is the owner of Haw River Mushrooms. Her farm has doubled in size every year since it opened in 2012.
4: I used to have to kind of explain how to cook even oysters and definitely things like lion's mane to almost every customer. And now I have quite a few that just come in, they know exactly what they want, you know, they're happy to listen to my spiel, but they don't really need it. So like the general education level of customers around mushrooms has gone way up. Uh, it's a little hard to know how much is just that our business has gotten bigger and we're getting better at what we do, but business has definitely grown steadily. And, and I would uh, attribute that in part to just the US kind of hitting its stride around mushroom consumption. That sound is our misters kicking on. So those are on a timer and we're uh, just trying to keep it at 90% humidity, which keeps these guys happy.
2: Laura is showing me through Har River's foggy and humid grow room. With rack after rack of erupting mushroom pods, it feels like something out of a science fiction movie. A lot of times we'll talk
4: about lion's mane as being kind of like crab meat. Black pearl mushrooms, uh, which are cultivated for their stems and they taste like sea scallops.
2: Earlier in the process, fungal spores are inoculated in a sterilized substrate mix of sawdust and soybean hulls. They sit in thick plastic bags in a refrigerated trailer to begin growing, and then they're moved to this warmer room when they're ready to fruit. Laura's team makes their way through this room twice a day to pick ripe mushrooms.
4: Our blue oyster mushrooms double in size every 24 hours during their main growth stage. So um, by tomorrow, they're probably gonna be a little further than we would want them to be. Today, they're a little younger than we want them to be. So even harvesting twice a day, we can't catch all of them at that perfect moment. It's wild, like uh, there were times when we were starting out, we just wouldn't have quite quite as many mushrooms as we'd wanna bring to market. And I would literally do a second harvest right before I left. I'd pack everything and then go back in because in that hour, things had gotten a little bit bigger.
2: The oysters are a mainstay at Haw River Mushrooms.
4: Chefs love oyster mushrooms. We'll grow what we call blue oysters year round. Um, So in the winter, we have this completely white mushroom we call the snow oyster. And then this brown, kind of meaty, chewy oyster we call the Italian oyster. And then in the summer, those take a rest. And we start growing uh, golden oysters, which really are this radiant yellow, and pink oysters, which are this pretty awesome pink.
2: Laura and her husband started Haw River as a vegetable farm. Mushrooms were just one of many crops.
4: We just thought we'll add mushrooms to our lineup. We'll have lettuce and broccoli, and we'll throw in some mushrooms as another variety and kind of got the bug and realized there's a lot more diversity that we could explore
2: if we focused on it. They've since moved from working out of their home to managing a 17-acre farm with this huge warehouse and some outbuildings, and they're in the process of building a commercial kitchen. Along with the CSA, Haw River sells at eight farmers' markets, they make mushroom jerky and tinctures, and they even sell mushroom-growing kits. Wholesale to restaurants is a cornerstone of their steady income. It's part of why they grow indoors rather than outside on logs. In order to run our operation, uh, we knew that
4: we needed to be able to provide mushrooms year-round and irregardless of the weather. And a lot of our chefs will put us on their seasonal menu. And sort of our unspoken contract to them is that if we don't deliver those mushrooms, they're going to have to 86 the dish. Uh, And we would probably lose that account and the, the chef would lose revenue.
2: And Laura wants to keep this part of her business thriving for local chefs. We're
4: definitely seeing a lot of innovation with mushrooms and how they're such a unique protein that can feed the world and be produced on such a limited footprint.
2: One of Haw River's wholesale clients is the Eddy Pub. The Eddy is also located in Saxapaha, North Carolina. It's a former mill town outside Chapel Hill that's cultivated a reputation as a quirky arts and food getaway. I'm sitting at the bar at the Eddy trying their pickled mushroom conserva and a very decadent mushroom toast. Sauteed in
5: butter with shallots and a little bit of white wine and then cream and goat cheese.
2: Isaiah Allen is the Eddie's executive chef and co-owner. He's also a farmer and invested in seasonal produce.
5: January, it's great for the winter. You, we, as delicious as it is, once we hit, start hitting April, you know, the end of March, early April, and the days start getting into the 70s and 80s, it's time to pull it because it, it's a heavy app.
2: Moving to a table, he tells me about the Eddie's sustainability activities.
5: Minimizing waste is a huge, huge part of what we do. And so even when I create dishes and think about how to source, I also think about about that.
2: Chef Allen made today's dishes with so-called B-grade mushrooms from Haw River, a less pretty mix of cinnamon caps, lion's mane, and oyster mushrooms.
5: There's certain chefs that want this pristine product that comes to them at, you know, top dollar and everything has to be perfectly sized and perfectly shaped and, you know, kind of having the ag side of that as well, you know, I know how difficult that can be. And, um, yeah, I think as I've developed as a chef, I've kind of veered away from that a little bit. And if I'm gonna chop up mushrooms and saute them in a pan, I don't need, I don't need them to look all the same. So it benefits me and our customers because I can put it on the menu at a lower price point to buy their B-grade. Honestly, their B-grade are fantastic quality. Um, you know, if they weren't, then it would probably be a different story.
2: The Eddie receives mushrooms from Haw River in the substrate grow bags that I saw over at Laura's
5: farm. And we don't waste that either. So we'll take a paring knife and we'll just trim off the sawdust and then we'll grind the mushroom stems and make mushroom stock out of that. Once we've extracted everything that we could possibly get out of it, then it goes into the buckets to compost.
2: The sawdust dumps of the mushrooms end up at Chef Allen's Rocky Run Farm.
5: We compost every single food scrap, whether it's meat, bone, um, dairy, vegetable, and it all goes to our farm. So, we add... We take their spent mushroom mycelium bags by the truckload and we'll bring them to the farm and I add the spent mushroom mycelium to the entire pile. I got this light bulb moment one day realizing that I had all these wood chips lined up and uh, understanding what mushrooms do to wood and how they feed on the sugars in wood. And it's, you can look at my compost pile from the front side where the food is added, the nitrogen source, and it just steams like crazy in the winter.
2: Laura from Haw River Mushrooms has also figured out some novel uses for this used substrate. Being in the farming community, we, we realize what a privilege it
4: is to have a product that its byproduct just builds soil. We've also used some of our spent substrate for uh, what we call mycoremediation projects. So we have a river that runs through our property um, that had a lot of erosion downstream. And we, we took those bags and put them in coffee bags. Um, And it kind of helps slow the erosion, and also as the water went through there, it would
2: get some natural filtration. So mushrooms are versatile as a food. But Laura says that uses like this make them even more powerful, and yes, keep them trending. I think that's
4: where it's like, yeah, we could definitely do this, you know, our whole lives, and we're not going to run out of things to learn. It's, It's exciting I feel like it's one of the last remaining frontiers, you know, that there's, there's just still so much to explore and learn.
2: For WFIU's Earth Eats, I'm Josephine McCraby.
1: Tomatoes, celery, uh, early girls in the middle, patio tomatoes on the ends, and then uh, a mix of peppers and celery, and then over here we've got uh, some nice eggplant that are coming.
0: It took Jared Dorch and I a few tries before we successfully scheduled an interview at his home garden in Indianapolis. We were both on board, but life kept getting in the way. When the day finally arrived, it was raining but I wasn't about to cancel. Luckily, Dr. Dorch's home has a covered front porch. Uh,
1: I'm Dr. Jared Dorch. I'm actually a professor of communication at Ivy Tech here in Indianapolis. Um, I live in the Garfield Park area. I just moved down here maybe less than a year ago, so I'm getting to know the neighborhood, moving from a suburban area to a more urban area.
0: He lives in a bungalow on Nelson Street in the Garfield Park neighborhood in Indianapolis. It's part of the Big Car Collaborative's Artist and Public Life Residency in the Cruft Street Commons. The Tube Factory art space is just around the corner, and Jared Dorch has been connected with the art collective for about 10 years. But I was here to talk to him about his work as a gardener. Jared is the owner and operator of Soulful Gardens. I asked him how he got started.
1: Well, Sofa Gardens came out of, while I was working on my dissertation, five years or so back, I was really stressed out, wasn't eating great, just needed to do something different. So me and my dad, we started a garden in my backyard. Uh, my parents had moved near where I was living before, and my mom, for some reason, wasn't going to let my dad have a garden. So I was like, you know what, i got plenty of space. How about we start one in my backyard? And it was Memorial Day weekend. We were listening to the race. We went to the, I went to the nursery early in the morning, got a bunch of stuff. And then that day we put in a bunch of vegetables, and it took off. Um, and once I saw that, and every day I would come out and I would look at my leaves and my plants, and I would try to take care of them. And after doing that, eating fresh, fresh from the garden, I thought, well, I wanted to share this with other people. So I kind of started what it's a CSA, but I didn't know that at the time. Uh, community support agriculture. I so I was saying, you know, give me like fifty dollars at the beginning of, before the season starts. And I'll invest that money into the garden and I'll take care of the garden, I'll water it, I'll buy the plants and stuff, and all you need to do is come by every every week or so and pick up a pound, two, three pounds of produce.
0: Jared found that though people wanted to support him by purchasing a membership, they didn't always show up to pick up their shares. And he struggled to find places to donate the fresh produce. Many local pantries were only set up to take non-perishable food he eventually found a pantry that distributes produce, and he donated some to Second Helpings, a community kitchen that's well-versed in handling perishable foods. But Jared realized that he needed to adjust his model to make it work for him.
1: So then I moved into working with Big Car down here in Garfield Park. I started doing their raised bed gardens. And once I started doing the raised bed gardens, I learned that you know maybe I could take the, the garden actually to the people's house, instead of them coming to get vegetables from my house. Tube Factory is an art space. It's a museum, gallery, and public community art area. So I've been working with them for the last almost 10 years now as a community artist. And they've been very supportive in all of my endeavors. And then as I moved into the gardening, they had boxes that were already available to them. And I stepped in to work those boxes and work a few other boxes in the neighborhood. And I really learned the craft doing that. And then once I did that, I learned how using a raised box, a raised bed, how like much more efficient and much better the growth was and then also how much more accessible it is to people because a lot of times people either you can't dig or you don't want to dig or you know your ground or your soil might not be good or you might have you know animals or you might have you know pets and you want to raise it up or you want it to look a certain way uh, i found that the boxes were much more efficient you could control the soil and also it allowed for individuals that may have never grown anything before to be more successful It's much more successful that way, taking that and then moving into trying to find a way to replicate that at a retail level for individual homes. And that became really a good thing for for me. Once I realized that the CSA format for me personally wasn't going to be, personally and professionally wouldn't be that great, uh, I started having people inquire about, you know, I want to start a garden. How can I do that? And I was like, okay, let me figure out what would be the best way to bring a garden to people's homes. because. I always say what's fresher than the farmer's market is your yard. If I can walk outside and pick something, it's going to be much more likely that I'm going to eat that than if I have to go somewhere to get it. Um, So I started doing some investigation after I learned about, you know, raised bed gardens and square foot gardening. I started doing some, uh, some research, and then I said, you know what? Let me attempt to build some of these on my own. Because there are a lot of kits out there and things, but I wanted to build it on my own. And I didn't have a whole lot of experience with, like, woodworking and power tools, any of that. So I learned all that stuff and then I started developing a basic box concept that I liked, it's a four by four box that gives you 16 growing zones if you're in the square foot gardening. I put a little fence around it so that, an- I mean, animals are gonna get into it, but not as many, it's the- that barrier tends to help quite a bit. Uh, and then I started learning about, you know, where to p- comp- uh, companion gardening. Like what plants need to be next to what, and you know what positioning in the garden—north, south, east, or west—should you put certain things? And then once I got through all that learning, on um, that next season I came out and I started offering a few boxes. And I had one customer that first year, and they're still a customer of mine. And I come by every year and I replant their box. And then after that, it started to, it started to to grow. People started to see the, the promise in the product that I was producing. They started to see the growth. People started to see health-wise, the benefits of eating fresh. And then unfortunately we had a pandemic where everyone was at home. They needed things to supplement their STEM education for their children. They were worried about food in the stores. They were worried about supply chain. So it kind of all came together at the same time. And not that I would ever say that the pandemic was a benefit, but it was a benefit to those individuals who were interested in growing their own food because it taught them how it taught a lot of people how necessary it was it also was kind of a, an issue for a while because that first year um during that first summer of the pandemic there was a lot of seed and a lot of materials being used by individuals who hadn't used it before so for individuals that were in the industry or in the business of the agricultural business it became more difficult to find supplies and things um but i never got upset about it because i knew people were using it for a good it was an overall good that people were being in more engaged and more involved in the food that they're eating
0: but the pandemic led to other issues, which we'll hear about after a short break. My guest is Dr. Jared Dorch of Soulful Gardens in Indianapolis. Stay with us. I'm Kate Young, This is Earth Eats. I'm speaking with professor, community artist, and urban grower, Jared Dorch. Before the break, we were talking about how the pandemic increased demand for his raised bed gardening services, but also how gardening supplies were somewhat depleted due to the new crop of home gardeners that had sprouted up with stay-at-home orders and food scarcity concerns. This year, Jared found that lumber was so overpriced, it made it difficult for him to continue building raised beds for the prices he had been offering.
1: I did uh, a really large community garden up in Gary, and by the time I got it done, the wood I was buying for the last set of beds I built was uh, $5 to $10 more than it was when I originally bought the, the original. So budgeting has been very difficult. It's been up and down, but I think things are settling down a little bit now, so...
0: So tell me more about the community garden you started up near Gary.
1: Oh, so I started a garden at a, a, a charter school in Gary, the charter school of the Dunes. They wanted to supplement their food for their students with the garden, and they also wanted to use the garden for education. So I, we built, um, I think we built like four uh, large beds to begin with, and then we went ahead and uh, added more beds, and we also built a greenhouse. We want, hopefully this will be an opportunity for the students in the building and the community surrounding it to be able to, to have more access to fresh foods and fresh produce yeah like for them uh, I know a lot of uh, times they start seeds in like their science classes and things and then they can put those seeds into the ground and see them cur- turn into uh, plants and then also in their math classes they can learn about you know how much you can get from a certain plant. And, you know, even if they do a farmer's market or something of that nature, you can start doing some additions. Some tra- so there's so many different opportunities for them to learn from. And number one thing is, like, learning about the soil itself. What what components make up the soil, how to make soil. And I don't say dirt, I say soil, because there's a, there's a difference. Soil is something that feeds and nurtures your plants. Dirt is, like, what you use to fill holes. Um, so for knowing, like, you know, getting into vermiculture, dealing with, uh, worms and uh, learning about worm castings and how that is a benefit to your soil and learning about how um, leaves and other natural materials uh, biodegrade and compost and how that is uh, a, a net benefit for the actual uh, flavor and nutrition of the plant or the vegetable that you're eating. Like, like, a, like a tomato is much more nutrient dense if it comes from certain soil. These are, t- these are things that students may have not been exposed to but as we need to know more about these things, I think they will know more about these things with the addition of these type of supplemental educational things at their schools.
0: So you went up there and um, built the beds and kind of set up the system. Do you, will you be offering support throughout, like coming back? And...
1: The, the plan is to do, some, uh, to do some educational programming either via video or in person. But also it will always be something that I'm always checking in on. They've connected with Purdue Extension up there, and they have some strong student and faculty leaders there that are working on it. So it's gonna be something that's gonna be taken care of. Uh, But I also always have a a hand in it as it's gonna be, something that's always gonna be in my heart, so. One of my biggest worries going into it was like, who is going to take care of this? Actually, one of my best friends is the school officer at the school. I mean, he's also a pretty good gardener, so I know that he'll keep an eye on things. But I wanted to make sure that there were systems in place. And that's one of the reasons we built the greenhouse but I want to make sure they had like a water system provided um, because it's it's even though it's a little cooler in northwest Indiana it's going to be hot um, and then we add the plastic it's going to be super hot and now are you going to be able to maintain the the beds are going to be able? To, yes there's a whole lot that goes into it I've always tried to stay away from big greenhouses because I know that's going to be it's almost a job for one person
0: well and also with school gardening you have to take into consideration what months of the year are they there, and what months are they gone, and then plan your garden according to that, which is hard, because the summer growing season, they're not around.
1: They're, yeah, they're coming in really when it's it's kind of a changeover from, you're your harvesting from the summer plants, and then you're moving into planning your fall garden if you're interested in having a fall garden. Yeah. So it's, it's very difficult. Yeah. And then there's always some you know, transitioning between students in and out, and Depending on how you have the setup, is if it's a garden club or if it's a part of a classroom assignment, who's going to be involved and how often they're going to be involved. So there are a lot of factors, and it really was a learning experience to, to find out, you know, what is the best means in which to approach a situation where you're dealing with students in school. And that exposure is great. It's really in an area where food access is a huge issue. Uh, it provides them a kind of an understanding. So there's a lot of students, a lot of people in general that don't know where their food comes from. Yeah, I think that was a huge factor is the fact that the the plan was to utilize some of that um, produce in the actual lunches, and the actual the meals that are being served, and also it uh, would provide um, supplemental food for families, for children to take home to their families. So, and then also the child feels like they've done something because they've been part of bringing home food, and they've been yeah. part of creating the food that their family's eating.
0: Yeah, if you can see your own che- the cherry tomatoes you grew in the salad bar at the school it feels like you have a sense of pride like we did that
1: and i have a real thing about cherry tomatoes because in my garden they're usually like snack food for me or for my animals my dogs but if you go to the store they're like 4.99 a pound and i'm like these are literally while i'm out in the garden you know working the soil or you know picking uh weeds or pulling off some dead leaves i'm eating the cherry tomatoes like like candy and then you go to the store and it's four ninety nine a pound. Yeah. So it's really important that we learn about eating, seasonally eating and growing and seasonally growing. We've gotten spoiled to the fact that I can go to the, the grocery store and get something outside of the season. But learning about creating recipes and creating meal plans based off of what's available at the time, is really, really important.
0: Since you bring up recipes, could you talk about any of the foods that you've discovered through your gardening efforts that stick with you or have become favorites?
1: It's really funny because the first little garden that I ever did, I took a chest of drawers. I took all the drawers out and for each of the drawers, I turned those into little lettuce beds. And then the actual chest itself, I turned it over and I turned it into a pepper bed so i guess i was doing raised beds before i really knew it and so in our house the number one priority for us every year is our peppers um, because we can use those in about everything and we like peppers we like them hot and we also like to freeze them and can them and pickle them and then the lettuce once i had the lettuce from my garden uh, usually like loose leaf mescaline mix or a green a green or a red mix it changed the way i view a salad like it was totally different and I've been off of iceberg for a long time. Uh, you know, I know about the remains and I know about buying green leaf lettuce at the store. But it's really different when you're growing it in your yard. And if you're smart enough and not do like I did and plant all at once, you can have it all season long. I know those are very basic things. Like I said, tomatoes, my dad always grew a lot of tomatoes and we had peppers, but seeing the vast variety of pepper and the different complex flavors that those peppers can bring to different meals uh, really changed a lot of things. We're big omelet people, Uh, omelet frittata, you know, egg-based meals. And so I use a lot of peppers like directly out of the garden. A a very vast mix of them, too. Hot, very regular, like, earthy, smoky. There's such a different variety of flavors. So I think, I mean, even though it may not one food, but just the fact that I have access to that many different flavors, especially with peppers, and knowing that they're such a good food for you overall, with with the level of fiber and other content, I think, the, I think the peppers is the number one thing.
0: You said you hadn't really been that into eggplant before, but then you discovered some things you could make with it.
1: Oh, with eggplant, really, um, the Ichiban eggplant, the smaller um, Japanese-style eggplant. Um, you know, growing up, I've had eggplant parmesan, and, and I'm not a big fan. Like, I, I really actually wasn't a big very big fan. But finding the smaller eggplant and putting it in the stir-fries and using, like, um, a lot of the vegetables from the garden together in a stir-fry very quick, uh hearty, healthy meal. Those are things that really got me. And then the herbs. My wife is very into the herbs and learning about not only the, um, the taste of the herbs, but the medicinal properties of the different herbs. That really has changed the way that we eat too.
0: Yeah, and herbs are one of those things where it just feels ridiculous to go to the store and buy a little packet when you're like, it's, I could just be snipping them in the yard, you know?
1: <laughs> once you realize how easy herbs are to grow and how bountiful they can be, it really is. It really is. I guess uh, our favorite thing that we found out about is we planted garlic a couple of years back. We planted it like Halloween, yeah. and then we uh, pulled it on uh, Father's Day the next year, and that was our that was our biggest moment. Like we were, that was the epitome of we're we're in this now. Yeah. Once we could pull garlic straight out of the ground and have our own garlic, yeah. um, and then the fact that you can just take a bulb of garlic and turn it into like you know eight to ten garlic yes. plants. It takes patience, it takes, you know, we had to make sure that we covered them over the winter and we we took good care of them. But to see them pop up and uh, to be able to eat them and be able to share them with people, it really changed. Like that was our, we made it then. You know, we've made it now. The fact that we were growing our own garlic. And now my wife and I were trying to get into like ginger and turmeric and some of the more root vegetables and things that are a little bit more exotic. Um, But garlic really was the one. Because I find myself, those were the things that we were buying the most. Onions I got better at onions that meant a lot to me because we used a ton of onions uh, onions peppers, garlic tomatoes these are things that we use in multiple different types of meals. It really made me happy because during that time garlic is growing when other things are not yeah. so at least you're still growing something right. so I could still go outside and like see yep. growth and see that that period where you're like waiting you know between you know maybe November to March where you're waiting on something to grow. Garlic gives you that little fix, like, oh, I can go out and, oh, the the garlic's sprouting, the garlic's coming up. I've seen some stalks. You know, it gives you a little boost because you're not able to grow it.
0: Growing food is not just about the food for Jared Dorch. After a short break, we'll hear more about what gardening means to him. Stay with us. Kate Young here, this is Earth Eats. If you're just joining us, my guest is Dr. Jared Dorch. He's a communications professor, a community artist, and an urban gardener. We've been talking about some of the foods he likes to grow. Some of his favorites are peppers and garlic. We talked about other foods that he recommends for first-time gardeners and how to handle the surplus if your garden is particularly successful.
1: I always tell people to grow things that are going to have a bountiful production um, that you also can save for the times that you don't have it. So the fact that you can freeze those things is really good. Canning and freezing. It's really freezing for me. Um, get you a food saver or something that keeps the package without airing it. We did a lot of canning. I stepped away from canning a little bit. We always made canned pickles, like hot pickles, yeah. with either cucumber or t- like green tomatoes. Um, there there's so much sodium in a lot of that that I slowed down with that. For a while, my wife would do canning of fruit. My wife made some really great, like, preserves and jams. But we don't do as much. We just don't have as much space. Yeah. Um, and we, there's only two of us, so we don't really uh, use as much of it as others would. Um, my, my parents still do a lot, of, a lot of canning of peppers and tomatoes oh, cool. for pickles. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I tell people, uh, bush beans is another one. Cow peas, um, oh, like nice. purple hole peas or black-eyed peas. Yeah. Um, they're bush, so they don't take up a lot of space. They produce yeah. quite a bit. You'll get you know, two or three solid harvests off of them, depending on how many you, you plant. You, them, you can dry right? them, you can can them, you can freeze them. I think that my number one thing I tell people is that when you're planting your garden, make sure you're planting on things that you can freeze, dry, or can, so there's longevity. I wanted to make sure that what I was growing wasn't gonna go to waste. So I, I do like, uh, I call it salsa, but it's really pico de gallo. Now I can grow every element. I can grow the garlic, I can grow the onions, I can grow the tomatoes, I can grow the peppers. I can't grow the limes, that's the only thing I guess, but I could grow a lime, like a mini lime bush. But you can use lime basil, which has got the same flavor. But those were things I know that we, whenever we're buying groceries, we're buying those things. And those are things that I know that are staples in our home.
0: Jared has plenty of ideas about what to grow and how to prepare and preserve the food that you've grown but from that very first garden that he planted with his father one memorial day weekend it's always been about more than just the food for jared dorch i asked him to think back on that time on what led him to gardening in the first place he was in graduate school working on his dissertation
1: really um like i went to the doctor and i got all my blood work done and my health was not good mentally physically spiritually emotionally all of it was a problem so when i started working in the garden it gave me an opportunity to kind of let go of a lot of things to uh, do something that was positive to see growth every day and also be outside I'm not sitting in front of a computer you know not sitting at a desk to be outside doing something physical and it got me to motivated to do a lot more than i had been doing and i think that that Um, got me to say, you know what, I think that this could be a benefit for other people. Um, Because I know, uh, you know, you get into your 30s and 40s and uh, you're in your job and a lot of our jobs are sitting and working at a computer at our desk and not doing a lot of like actual movement or being outside. I think that it was an opportunity for me to do something that really changed my health. And I knew that if it changed my health, that it could be beneficial to others that I knew were dealing with some of the same issues. It really is a holistic thing. It really is about going outside, and um, it really, you know, it's it's about patience, learning to wait on a seed to grow into uh, a vegetable. Like that's the most awesome transition to see a little bitty seed guy pop out and become this beautiful vegetable, and then eat it on your plate later on. Um, it's about actually getting some vitamin D and getting some, you know, some actually some activity about digging and working, about getting to know the earth better. It's, it's really about not being into instant gratification. The majority of the things that we deal with and the things that we prepare and how we get things now are so quick that we don't have the opportunity to really understand where it's coming from and understand like the work behind it. Like when I eat lettuce out of my garden or I eat tomatoes out of my garden, it's a different experience than just eating a tomato that I bought, you know, or even now more than anything had delivered to my home by a grocery store. So it's, it's a totally different experience. Yes, um, the produce, I mean, honestly, there's always an economic factor and a benefit from growing your own food. But really the experience was m- much less about that and much more about just getting outside, being active, learning a new skill, finding something to, 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 to dive into, to do research about and find out about. That was something that I wanted to do and it wasn't dictated to me. Um, so it was a totally different situation. Yes. I saved a lot of money because I had food available and I found ways to use the food that I had to make meals, even though I may have not, like, eggplants and things like that, I hadn't really cooked very often, but I found out ways to use them because I I found out that it's really important to be connected to what you're cooking and eating and to have an experience in learning about that. It, uh, It just changes the way that you view food in general.
0: What do you think about the way that a lot of people who hadn't been interested in growing food before suddenly became interested when the pandemic hit? I think that, I
1: think it's good. I, it's unfortunate that it had to be this situation that got people interested in the food. But for me to get so interested in it, it took me to see my health decline. So if this is what got individuals to be more interested in it, my only hope can be that it's not something that ends once things get so-called better. My hope is that it's a a lifelong skill that they've gotten now, or a lifelong habit that they have, or a lifelong, you know, joy. joy. Yeah, it's something they they enjoy doing. I know I've worked with several young people, uh, and every year, like, this is what they like to do. Like, they know they're gonna be home during the summertime, and they're growing up, and this is something they're doing, and they've learned a skill that they can use into their adulthood. I think that the number one priority is that we don't forget the lessons learned from the situation. And then we take the skills that we learn and we continue to pass them on uh, to either, and it's not always just to your children, it's to whoever's open to the information. Like, I wanna share it with my community members and my neighbors and whoever else wants to learn something about it. Like, I wanna learn from my community members. I wanna learn from my neighbors. I wanna learn from young people that are growing things that I'm not growing. I just think that it's an opportunity for us to change, to fundamentally change the way we look at what and how we eat. And I just hope that this isn't just a small moment in that, but it's the beginning of a food revolution as it comes to individuals. And everybody's not going to jump into it, but I think that those who have spent the time and the effort the last couple of years, I hope that they continue to do so and they spread the word. And, and and I hope that they realize it beyond the economic point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the holistic point. Like, for me, it was totally... like. I can afford to buy food at the grocery store. I don't like to do it because I know from past history like the how much more it costs to go to the store. But I also know that there's so many other benefits from going into the garden and doing it than there are from going to the store and doing it. Um, and there's nothing wrong with the grocery stores. We need to have those. But you definitely can supplement your your eating with having your own garden.
0: It makes me feel better. That's the reason I do it. I like how I feel when I spend time in the garden.
1: I find that I'm more creative once I come out of the garden too. I do a lot of art-related stuff, and I feel like when I spend some time in the garden, and I, especially, it's time where I can I can genu like genuinely spend that time thinking about what I'm doing in the garden. It's not just the mechanics of it. Like it's actually like oh okay, planning and looking at and being creative and thinking about. The long-term outcome of what's going to come from what I'm growing or from what I'm putting things, I think that spurs my overall creativity and makes me more of a well-rounded individual as I, as I approach different issues or problems or, you know, ops, opportunities, anything.
0: With a full-time teaching job, involvement with community art projects, and the growing demand with Soulful Gardens, Jared has been feeling overstretched. He wants to make sure that gardening remains a nourishing element in his life rather than a source of stress. An injury this summer forced him to step back a bit and he says he'll be rethinking the future of the work.
1: Soulful Gardens will definitely be going under the microscope during the, the colder months this year uh, and decisions will be made about how we best can serve our community moving forward. I feel that For me as an individual, it's a little bit too much for one individual to do, which is a good thing. That means you've built something that's gotten big enough that you need to expand. Uh, But now it's really about deciding how we want to expand. So it's really about finding a balance between efficiency and productivity. The more people we can serve, the better, because it opens up the more opportunities and more access to more people. But we also want to make sure that we're not so focused on quantity that we're not, the quality is not there either quality of production or quality of experience because it's, it's really an experience this season I, it was a struggle this season uh, and I planted some vegetables and uh, some boxes here at my home uh, and they did not do very well at all I don't know what it was this year but they just weren't doing very well and I just I said you know what I'm not gonna give up on these I'm not going to just say you know what uh, They all can't be winners and walk away from it. I decided that I was going to transplant them into a new box. Um, All the plants that I had before I transplanted into a new box. And that happens to be the box in the front that's doing the best right now. Um, So all those plants were ones that were underdeveloped. They hadn't been growing very well. And I took some time and I really put some effort into transplanting them, which is something I'm not as skilled at. There were okra, eggplant tomatoes, kale, and And chard. And I moved those and they're doing really well now. So they're like the few plants that I've been able to really spend some time with, really work with, um, really, you know, focus in on, and they've done well after a really rough start. And I kind of feel like they are, they give a light at the end of the tunnel for this whole season. (laughs) They provide light at the end of the tunnel, um, even though things might not work out exactly as you want them to, but what, uh, when you want them to, or how you want them to. If you take the time and the effort and the, have some patience, things will work out in the end.
0: The garden in his new place is just getting started, but it's already quite productive. We stepped out in the light drizzle to take a look. Okay, so what all do you have in this bed?
1: This is all uh, celery. Tomatoes, celery, uh, early girls in the middle, patio tomatoes on the ends, and then a mix of peppers and celery. And then over here, we've got Mm. got some nice eggplants coming. Uh, Kale, which um, I got some broccoli in front, okra that's coming. These eggplants, I'm really proud of them because they were really, really, they they were little shriveled up guys. And they are beautiful now.
0: They look gorgeous They're and they don't man. have all that like flea beetle damage. No, because that you a, lot like it's get. getting, a lot
1: of it's moving towards the, the green plant, but the, the, the broccoli, I'm going to be able to use that head no matter what happens to the leaf. I got some few cabbages in here and they've gotten eaten up pretty bad. Um, but like I said, I don't put any pesticides on stuff. I don't even put like diatomaceous earth or any of that on it. Like I don't put any those, any type of anything that'll kill a, a pest will kill something else too, to me. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to start doing, like, chard has a leaf that doesn't get eaten very much. So I'll do more chard. Collard greens do okay. But cabbage, kale, they, they get eaten pretty much pretty bad in the, in the hot summer. Yep. So I'm going to work on really refining my technique about the time that I spend and when I put things in and where I put things. Like, I got these two beds. Uh, once things slow down a little bit, it's, like, this is the first week I've had off of school too. Uh, but I'm going to fill those up and put, like, Cauliflower and broccoli and
0: oh, some, fall, some
1: stuff. fall stuff in uh, cool season crops. And these then the plan cool. also to put some plastic over the top of these during the fall to do some extension.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for talking to me. I really appreciate it. No problem.
1: No problem. I really enjoyed it. It's been a, a difficult season, but um, like I always say, Uh, From the obstacles that you face, you learn, and you adapt, then move forward. Always forward.
0: That was Dr. Jared Dorch of Soulful Gardens in Indianapolis. Find out more about his work at Eartheats.org. That's it for Earth Eats this week. Thanks for listening. I'm Kate Young. We'll see you next time. The Earth Eats team includes Bon Binder, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Josephine McRobbie, Daniela Richardson, Peyton Whaley, Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Special thanks this week to Frank Hyman, Laura Stewart, Isaiah Allen, and Jared Dorch. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from the artists at Universal Productions Music. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey.